And I want to thank you again for being here with us this morning. You know, I, like you, wondered just a minute ago if we were just going to sing the whole service because they never actually tell me what's going on around here. So they started the next song, and I thought, oh, well, I guess we're just going to, we're just going to keep going. Uh, in reality, this is only, believe it or not, our ninth ever church service since our, uh, since our grand opening. And I want to give a big thank you today to two people, uh, only nine weeks old in our church planning journey, uh, and we celebrated this weekend. We had our first ever ladies' retreat and had, believe it or not, nearly 70 ladies uh, up at uh, kind of in North Kansas City near the Zona Rosa area all night Friday and all day Saturday. And I saw some of you look real tired walking in. You know, we build it as a time to go get refreshed and probably you didn't sleep at all. And you're, you're actually more tired today than you were when you went. Uh, but I want to say a big thank you to Amy Zerby who's in the back. Amy, would you stand up just so that everyone knows who you are? And Vanessa Higgins, are you in here, Vanessa? Would you stand up too? These two ladies literally put on the entire ladies retreat. <laughs> and I thank you so much. And ladies, I hope it was a great time of ministry for you. My, my daughter Casey this morning asked me a, a funny question because they came to church. She and my son real early with me to set up, uh, and Danielle was still sleeping when uh, when we left. And uh, Casey said, "Is mom is mom coming to church today?" And I said, "Yeah, mom is coming to church today." And I said, "Why?" And she said, "I wondered if she was just going to sleep all day because of the ladies' retreatment." Um, and I said, no, she wasn't, she wasn't a treatment case. It was a retreat, not treat men. Uh, but hopefully some of you got some awesome ministry and, and maybe spiritual treatment this weekend at the ladies retreat. Have you ever had a moment in your life? You know, I'm, I'm 33, so I don't think I'm, I'm to the point of a midlife crisis yet, but a moment where you kind of sit down and reflect on your life and just wonder if you're headed in the right direction or not. Because I had one of those in 2009, uh, and really most of the year 2009 was like that for me. I, I'd been in ministry almost a decade, uh, and it's different when you do youth ministry and, and you, you minister to kids who, you know, I, I started ministering to kids who were in sixth grade, and then when they graduated from high school, they kind of go on and, and you never see them again. And it's a difficult ministry to ever see the fruit of your ministry because you, you raise your kids up and then they, they go away. Uh, and about 10 years into ministry, I really began to wonder uh, and really made a determination that, uh, that, that broke my heart. I thought, you know, I've been doing ministry for 10 years, uh, and I don't feel that I'm really making a difference in the world. Uh, and I've preached a lot of sermons, uh, and I've, you know, I've done a lot of counseling, and you know, I've, I've, I think I've, I've probably been a pretty good preacher the last 10 years, but I don't think I've been a very good Christian uh, and I just began to struggle with, with what my mark on the world was going to be. And, you know, when I left, uh, really what they were going to say, say about me at my funeral. And I don't know if you've ever thought about your funeral or, uh, or you've, you've thought about what was going to be said about you at your funeral. I actually have a, a man in my life who for the last eight years, every time he's seen me at church, he said, Hey, I want you to preach my funeral when I die. Uh, and I bet literally he's told me that dozens of times. Say, hey, I want you to do my funeral when I die. And I told the ladies at the ladies' retreat, it's been a few years since I've seen him. But he told me over and over and over again, I want you to do my funeral when I die. And I got a call this week from his grandson that, that, uh, that he, he's just, he has found out he's got cancer and it's incurable. And he said, my dad or my granddad wanted to see if you remembered that he wanted you to do his funeral. And I said, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember exactly uh, what he wants me to say, actually. Um, and and uh, I asked him, I said, what happened? What's, what's wrong with him? Uh, and he began to tell me, he said, when well, June, he went to the doctor. He's, all, he's, almost, he's almost done. Too loud in here for him. Um, he said in June, he went to the doctor and got a clean bill of health. Grand, he's about 80 years old. Uh, and he said he's, been, he's just been not feeling well lately. So he went to the doctor on Monday, been having some real bad stomach problems. 
He said they ran the blood test, and they, after running the blood test, they came back, and they, they said preliminary results. They said, we think you have pancreatic cancer. Uh, and they said, you probably have six to 12 months. Uh, and with chemo, if we do a real good job, you might get three to four years. Uh, and he said, you know, we went home Monday. The family went home and said, you know, we've got a year at the least, four years at the most. Let's figure out how to make this count. And Monday night, they got a call from the doctor. And the doctor said, we've run the full slate of tests now, uh, and we were wrong. You've got seven to 14 days. Um, it, it's past the point of helping. So they called me and said, can you do a funeral in the next few weeks? And I don't know if you've thought about your funeral, but two years ago I kind of I thought about my life. And I thought, you know, I've, I've, I've done ministry for ten years, and I don't know that I'm making a difference in the world. And I went into a real funk for about nine months as I looked at what I, what I thought the Bible said Christians should do and churches should do and what I had done as a pastor and how I had lived my life. Uh, and I went to, in 2009, October 2009, went over to Korea for a, a, a pastor's conference in Seoul, Korea. And if, if you're not aware, probably the greatest revival in the world is, is happening in Korea. This is my little notebook from that week uh, two years ago, a little over two years ago. Uh, and there's a church, the largest church in the world is in Seoul, Korea. It has 850,000 people in it that are involved in weekly ministry. I want you to think about that now. 850,000 people involved in their weekly ministry. Largest church in the world. Great things happening over there. And when I was over there kind of dealing with everything that, that I was going through in life, I really felt God lay on my heart on October 23, 2009. I mean, I've actually got it in my notes right here that God spoke to me that, Christian, all the things you're struggling with and all the things you wish you were doing and all the things that you think a Christian is supposed to do, I want you to go start a church and I want you to do those things. And I mean, spoke to me so clear that day that actually in my notes here, I actually have the name Journey Church written down September 2011. This was two years before it happened. I mean, I felt like God spoke to me and said, go plant a church in Jackson County and do the things that that you think uh, you want to be remembered for doing when when you leave this world one day. That afternoon, I was at a prayer rally at at the Seoul World Cup Stadium. Their, their, uh, Their Arrowhead Stadium in Seoul was their World Cup Stadium. They built it when they had the World Cup there a few years ago. This seats 100,000 people, and they invited all their leaders in the church to come pray with them for eight hours, and 100,000 people showed up. This was just the church leaders. And for eight hours, 100,000 people had a church service, and every hour they'd have a pastor from some different place in the world get up and speak to these 100,000 leaders, and, and pastors from all over the world were there. And one of the men who spoke was a pastor by the name of Dag Mills, and he pastors a church of 30,000 people in Ghana. Uh, and he got up and spoke, and, he, and he, he gave this statistic that, you know, I knew the math on, but I'd never put the equation together. You know, I knew there were about 300 million people in the United States. I knew there were 6 billion people in the world, give or take. And he said, you know, he, he said, uh, if the United States of America were wiped off the earth tomorrow, he said 95% of the people in the world would still continue living their lives. Only 5% of the world, only 5 out of every 100 people in the world lives in the United States of America. Yet he said almost all of the money spent in global Christianity is raised and spent in America. And he said, we need your help. The world, like the vast majority of the world, 9 out of 10 people in the world doesn't live in America and they live on less than $2 a day and, and we're just dying here for food. And in America, you're... you're having church campuses that are hundreds and hundreds of million dollars and you have churches that are giving millions upon millions of dollars and he basically said we need your help and it was interesting because that morning i felt like god said 
Christian, you're supposed to start a church and live your life this way. But that afternoon, I felt like God say, now that I've got your attention about a church, you need to know that your church is going to live to basically support world missions. And I'm raising up your church so that you can take people, all the American people and money and influence that I've given to the United States of America, and you can support ministry around the world. I want to show you three things just biblically. If you have your sermon notes that that I want to give you before I introduce you to one of our ministry partners and and help you understand the heart of our church and what we do. If you take this little card right here, and if you have your Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 28. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. Uh, They have Bibles that, uh, that they can hand you. You can keep these. You can just use these for today. We love people to have a Bible in their hands at our church. We're always going to open our Bible, read our Bible, study our Bible. But I want to show you three different verses today in Scripture that underline the Christian's responsibility for the world. We're in message two of a four-message series. This series, this month at our church is called I Serve. And last week we talked about serving hurting people, and and we've got service projects lined up all month in November and December to go serve hurting people here locally in Lee Summit and in Kansas City. And today we're talking about I Serve the World, what a Christian's responsibility is uh, in serving the world. And you need to know three things biblically, because I grew up being taught this that missionaries were the ones who cared about people around the world. But like that was their job and normal Christians didn't need to worry about that. The missionaries did all that. But as I read scripture more closely, I learned that Christians were supposed to not only be aware, but involved in global Christianity. So I I just want to show you three verses, and then we're going to meet one of our ministry partners today, and we're going to talk about our church's involvement in India, what we're doing, and why we're doing it. First and foremost, on your little notes, if you're taking notes, the Bible says that every Christian... And I want you to underline the words on your sermon notes. Every Christian is commanded to care about global Christianity. You know, we we live in a world that has said Christianity is really how righteous you become, not how much you love other people. But when you read the Bible, Jesus says that people will know us by our love, not our righteousness. They'll know you by the way you love, by the way you care. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, we call the Great Commission, Jesus told the disciples... And through the disciples told every Christian, this is not just a message to missionaries who feel called to serve around the world. Jesus says, therefore, go. I want you to underline or circle or highlight, do something to that word go in your Bible so you can see it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, the key word in this section is go. Jesus said Christians were supposed to go to all the world and, and tell people about Jesus. Now, you and I, for, for about $1,500 probably, with enough advance notice, in today's world can buy an airline ticket and be anywhere on planet Earth for probably $1,500 if we plan a month in advance. Anywhere on planet Earth. We have... We have an easier time going to the world today than any generation of Christianity has ever had. Yet we, we leave it to other people if we even think about it. Somebody else does that. I'll give a little money and, and someone else can do that. But Jesus said Christians were supposed to go. That we were supposed to care about global Christianity and actually go make a difference in global Christianity. Jesus also said, number two, as, as, as we look about the end times, Jesus said that, that going in Matthew chapter 24... That the spread of global Christianity, people actually hearing about Jesus all around the world, is key to the timing of the end of the world. We asked the question last night, 
when is the end of the world going to come? Or last week. And Jesus said the end of the world is going to come actually once people start doing global missions and going and telling people about Jesus. Where is that? Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom, if you have your Bibles, it's just a few chapters over to your left. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to every nation, and then the end is going to come. So the spread of global Christianity actually is going to make the end times come quicker. So we, we want to be a church that cares about Jesus coming back to set up his earthly kingdom forever and ever. So one way we do that is, is by going to the entire world. But then, number three, the Bible says caring about global Christianity is near to the heart of God. If you have your Bibles, go over to, to Hebrews chapter 12 or 13. Hebrews chapter 13. It's near the end of the New Testament. And the Bible says that uh, caring about global Christianity, caring about more than just your church, your budget, your town, your friends, your family, caring about global Christianity is very near to the heart of God. It's one of my favorite verses. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. And the author of Hebrews says this. Don't forget, it's a really interesting verse if you study and talk about it. Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have actually entertained angels without knowing it. And remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. The Bible here says that a, a, a true Christian will actually care about hurting people wherever they are going through whatever they're going through. And they'll attempt to make their problem their problem so that they can fix it. Now, there are not a lot of people who live their life to do that. Uh, but one of them who does is here with us today. And, Jill, I'm going to ask you to actually come up on stage, uh, if you would. Uh, I tell you, every time that, uh, that you give in the offering here at our church... Uh, I tell you, we, we try to give as much of the money that comes into this church away, uh, and I always show you a slide of our causes. And, and when you give, some of the money goes to India, uh, some of the money, and you can sit right there if you want, some goes to Romania, uh, some goes to the Sudan. Uh, and we're a church that uh, we're having our ninth service since grand opening, uh, but we're a church that, that every week is actually doing ministry on four different continents in the world, if you'll think about that. Every week we're supporting ministry on, in North America, Africa, Asia, in Europe right now at, at nine weeks. And it's our goal that by the end of the first year that we'll have a ministry partner on every, co every populated continent uh, on planet Earth and Israel because we believe in Genesis 12 says, if you bless Israel, God will bless you. So we're hoping that by next September, every time you, you give money in the offering, that we live, literally divvy it up and send it out everywhere in the world, and then that will only increase uh, as our church ministry increases. But one of the ministries that we support is called the Invisible Girl Project. Uh, and it's based in Chennai, India, uh, which some of you are going to have the opportunity to go to. Really, all of you have the opportunity uh, if you want to. Uh, but the director of that ministry uh, is Jill McElyay and her husband, Brad. And she's here today from Indianapolis. So would you welcome her to Journey Church International uh, today? She's going to talk to us a little bit about just a little bit of, of, about ministry and making a difference in the world. And here we are in, in Lee Summit, Missouri, 
trying to figure out how to touch the whole world with the ministry of Jesus. And here's the interesting thing. You're born and raised in Lee Summit, Missouri. You were. You live in Indianapolis now, but born and raised in Lee Summit, Missouri. Season tickets to the Colts game now in, in Indianapolis, which, uh, which makes me really jealous. Uh, but that, not this year because they're terrible, but that, that's okay. Um, that's all right. So are the Chiefs. I mean, we know how that feels this, this year, right? Um, but uh, tell us how a girl born and raised in Lee Summit ends up living her life um, and, and beginning a ministry, and probably you and your husband will end up living and, and dying in India. How, tell me how that connection began, starting with, with IJM, and then we'll, we'll work our way to the Invisible Girl Project. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me this morning. And I do have something to say, even though I live in Indianapolis. Go Chiefs! <laughs> uh, always go Chiefs. Yes, always yes. go Chiefs. It's good to be home. It's really good to be home. And I'm very grateful uh, that you're having me today. And my husband, Brad, wishes he could be here too. Uh, he's home in Indianapolis with our baby girl. We have a one-year-old, and we're getting ready to move. So he's packing up boxes so I could be here today. Uh, that's a nice husband. It's a great I husband. mean, that's a very nice husband who will pack boxes so that you can travel. <laughs> and take care of the baby. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's important as well. <laughs> so we started. I was living in India. In I moved to India in January of or I'm sorry. Yes, January of 2008. As a single woman, knowing that God had called me to India to work for a human rights organization over there. I'm an attorney by trade, and uh, I knew that God wanted me to go over there and help prosecute slaveholders. And so, being single. And not ever thinking that I would ever get married again, um, I knew that God wanted me to go. So in January of 2008, I picked up, I left Indianapolis, and I moved to India, to Chennai, India. And it's in the southeast corner of India where the tsunami was hit uh, a few years back. So I was living there, and just before I had moved, I had met my husband, Brad, on a missions trip to India about a month before I moved to India. And but didn't think anything of him. I, mo- I was moving to India. So, uh, but once I moved there, he began to pursue me. And uh, we dated long distance, very long distance, for all of 2008. And then got married in December of 2008. And so our first year of marriage was in India. And he's a pharmacist by trade. And so he could not practice pharmacy in India. The pharmacies are very, very different. And so he just really felt like he needed to do something with his time. I was working, and he certainly felt like he needed to be useful. And he had heard about something called female infanticide. Female infanticide is the murder of baby girls when they're born, just because they're girls. I know some of you have heard of that happening in China, but it happens in India every day. And when we were living there... To, to the tune of how many girls, they think, a year? They or? think five million girls every year are being killed from female infanticide or female feticide, which is sex-selective abortion. When a woman goes and finds out she's having a girl, she'll have an abortion because they don't want to have a girl. Because girls and women are devalued in Indian culture. Now, I say this, first of all, I need to say, we love India. It really became our home in our time there, and we love the Indian people. And I have to say, though, that the Indian people would certainly, our dearest friends would recognize, yes, our culture has a problem. So please know that I don't say this as a Westerner saying India has this huge problem, and I need to, I need to do something to fix it. No, our Indian friends absolutely recognize that there is a problem, too, and they're very aware that female infanticide goes on. 
So much so that in 2011, just this year, the Indian census came out, and it showed that there are 36 million fewer women than men in Indian society. 36 million. That's like the population of Missouri, uh, I think New York, and Texas. If you wipe out the whole population of Missouri, Texas, and New York, that's how many fewer women than men there are in, in, in India. So we had heard just about the discrimination of girls and women in India and that female infanticide was very much being practiced. And so um, my husband, like I said, really felt like he was supposed to do something about it. And it just it talk about how he found out about that specifically. I know you sure. told me last week you were there with the IJM uh, dealing with slavery. Talk about the problem of slavery in India for just a second. Because, you know, we, I mean, we live in a pretty sanitized world over here. Um, you know, slavery is something we study about in history books. Certainly not something happening today, but, you know, there are people are born into it, live their entire life as slaves, right? Absolutely. So when I went over there, I mean, the purpose was to help rescue people from slavery. And there are people that, um, I thank God, that I was able to go with government officials and go into rice mills where people um, help uh, dry rice or uh, brick kilns where people make bricks with their hands or rock quarries. People are enslaved there by slaveholders. And so I was able, with government officials, to help rescue them. The oldest slave that I met when I was there was in his 70s, and he had been there for his whole life. The youngest slave that we were able to help rescue when I lived there was four years old. So, so think about that. How many of you have children four years old or younger? Raise your hand. Think about that. This little girl was born into slavery and probably would have been a slave her entire life. And while you and Brad are there doing that ministry, he, he meets a woman in a village mm-hmm. who has, she has her seventh daughter. Mm-hmm. She's killed the previous six. Mm-hmm. And, and as he begins to talk to her, to talk about how, how first of all, why, why she killed the baby. What, you know, what, one of the many reasons why, why they're killing baby girls over there. And then how he, he basically bought her a name mm-hmm. to validate who she was and he realized she could make a difference. So my husband, Brad, hearing about female infanticide, went on kind of an exploratory trip to see whether this was true, and he went to this village. And he saw in this village there were all these little boys running around, and there were no little girls. And actually in this village, the boys outnumbered the girls eight to one. And the little children were were very open with my husband because he was probably the only white person they had ever seen, and he had a translator. And so they were very open with him in speaking about how baby girls were killed in this village. And they pointed to the little old grandmother off in the corner and said, she's the one who does it mostly. And can you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine my little grandmother, you know, that that was just her role in the village. She killed the baby girls. And so there was this woman my husband met, and and she had a tradition in her family, too. She was the 12th out of um, a family of girls, and her parents killed all 11 baby girls before her and just decided to keep her. Then carrying on this tradition in her family, too, she had had just a baby girl, and my husband saw her, and she's holding this baby girl. And the baby girl was still alive. Well, often what happens is within the first seven days, that's when the baby girl is killed. And so this baby girl was probably one or two days old. And so my husband began to speak to this woman and um, learned that this baby girl was not named. Now, in Indian culture, once you give a baby a name, it validates their birth. And being so poor, my husband said, would you mind if we name your baby girl? We'll give you uh, 200 rupees, which is the equivalent of $4, if you let us name your baby girl. 
And so she agreed. For $4, my husband was able to help name this little girl, Rama, which means a word from God, and help save this little girl's life. We know for a fact that after that, this mother did not kill the baby girl. My husband followed up, and this little girl is over two years old now, and she is alive, and she is well. And so my husband saw, oh my goodness, for $4, I can actually do something about this and help save a little girl's life. And, and that's exactly how Invisible Girl Project started. So my husband began to do research after that, and just after you know, being in this village, it just had such an impact on him. And he read and just learned statistics, and that's how we started Invisible Girl. And the reason they're killing the baby girls, their cultural belief, uh, a, a boy brings honor to a family, and it's been passed down through the culture that if you have a girl first and you sacrifice that girl and, and kill it, that you'll have a bo- it will mean you have a boy next, which clearly is not the case. Um, these girls are, are not able to pay a dowry to get married. They still have the ancient system where they, you know, the, the girl has to present a big gift to a husband so the girls can't ever be married, which, again, would bring more dishonor. So it's really a, a difficult cultural thing there. But, but what you all have begun to do specifically for, for these girls is, um, is, is what? From building orphanages to educating to providing clean water to what all are you going to do? So those are what some all of are things, you doing, I should say? Those are some of the things, absolutely, that we've gotten to do. So we started Invisible Girl Project just as Christian's heart was stirring in 2009. Ours were too. Just being in India and seeing the need. And not only feeling like, oh gosh, we've got to do something, but knowing that God was calling us to do something about this. And so that's when we started Invisible Girl Project. And like I said, as Westerners, we didn't come in and say, oh, you Indians, you need to change. Uh, But we learned about wonderful Indian organizations that were already doing fantastic work to help rescue baby girls so that they would not be murdered and to care for them, provide a loving Christian environment where they would be educated and where they would learn the love of Christ. My husband learned of these different organizations and asked them to partner with us. So now as an Isabel Girl Project here in the United States, we moved back to the United States at the very end of 2009. We incorporated, we're now a nonprofit here in the United States. And what we do is we raise money here in the United States and we send it over to our Indian partners so that we add to their capacity to care for these little girls, to help rescue little girls. Not only from infanticide, but I'm sure many of you have heard the word trafficking. It's kind of become a buzzword in American culture right now, and we know that trafficking is an absolutely huge problem. Well, it goes on in India all the time. Young girls are trafficked into brothels and forced into prostitution. Well, we have partners that help rescue little girls that are in situations where they perhaps could be trafficked. So we rescue, we help rescue them before they are trafficked. For example, Um, One of our partner organizations has a a home, an orphanage, where they have about 75 girls living there right now. And one of those little girls, which you all help sponsor, um, one of these little girls is named Bharati. Bharati's mother was a prostitute in the Chennai railway station. It's kind of the hub where, um, you know, the trains come in and out and the prostitutes just are. And um, Bharati was just a baby girl living living in the train station. And her mother would leave her every night so she could go turn her tricks. And one of our partners heard about Bharati and um, spoke with the mother and said, we can provide your daughter with a loving home. Uh, Would you be willing? And the mother said, absolutely. I don't want the same life for my daughter that I have. 
would you please take my little girl, take my baby girl, raise her, provide her an education, and tell her I'm dead. I don't want her to have my life. Well, now Barthi is 13 years old. She's thriving. She has awesome English. She is doing great in school, and she knows Jesus is her Lord and Savior, and she will not have the life of her mother. So our partner organizations do amazing work like this. And what we do here in the U.S. is, like I said, we, we raise money to add to their capacity so that they can care for more and more girls and help rescue them. Uh, talk about the, the community you guys went in and helped build the wall and help protect. Um, so tell us about that because I, I want our church to understand a little bit about what we're going to do. Um, you know, internationally, you know, our, our church is called, and maybe you've wondered, the, the question that I get asked most about our church uh, is what it, what's the international for? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know that there's a ton of churches with the word international in their name, but I get asked that question all the time. What is in, what's international mean? Uh, and I tell people that, you know, that means our church exists to serve the world. Uh, and from the very beginning, we're going to be a church that is doing things internationally all over the world. Um, and, and one of the things we want to do is, is partner together, not just to support girls, which, which we're doing now, but to build entire communities, um, schools and, uh, and hospitals um, and bunkhouses. And you, you have one facility you've been working with where the girls were unprotected, so you went in and, and what, built a wall. You have another community where you went in and, and put a water filtration system in. Just talk about some of those projects so that we can know what we're doing when, when we support your ministry. So with our different partner organizations, basically, we want to help meet their needs. We know that you know, even $1 goes a long way over there, where you know, here it, it's quite often nothing to us. So we ask our partner organizations, these orphanage, orphanages, and, and also um, you know, they care for local children too. We say, what do you need? Well, one of our partner organizations said, our girls who are living here are drinking dirty water. They don't have clean water, and many of them are getting sick. Can you help us? And so we raised money here in the United States to put in a water filtration system on site where the girls were living. And um, this partner organization has 100 acres in South India where they care for these baby girls, for these little girls, raise them up, where they have a baby cradle so that mothers who don't want their baby girls can just place them in the cradle, no questions asked. And, um, so that, and they also go into the villages and they recognize when women are, ha- are pregnant. They educate those women and tell Help tell them the value of little girls. But at this, at this specific orphanage um, on 100 acres, the girls were drinking dirty water. So we raised money. We put in a water filtration system. The girls are now drinking clean water. Over across the campus, the local village children uh, come to school, and the girls on site at the orphanage also go to school there. Well, they were drinking dirty water over there, so we raised another, enough money. It's about $7,000 for each system. So $7,000 and hundreds and hundreds of kids are now drinking clean water that they didn't have before, both at the school where the village children go and also at the, at the home, at the orphanage on site. So that was one of the needs that our partners had, and we were, you know, praise God, able to help them. Another facility that we work with, another organization, uh, the girls were living, it's about seven acres, and uh, that's the one that has about 75 girls living there. And um, they're just on this land that was completely unprotected. Anyone could come on the land. Um, India has a problem with people just coming on the land and squatting on the land, and um, the laws are are quite different there or just quite... They have that problem on Wall Street, too. People just (laughs) move in and and have have started to just go live on the street in America. It's a new, new kind of thing. So um, 
so we wanted to be able to protect the land and also protect the little girls. And so we were able to raise uh, about $35,000 here in the United States. And we put a built a seven-foot compound wall that went around the whole property of the site to protect the little girls on site, but also to protect the land because this, this orphanage has 75 girls now, but they have a vision of caring for over 1,000 girls. And so on this property, they have also asked us, please help us build a school. Right now the girls uh, are living in the place where they go to school and sleep on the floor every night. They have little mats on the floor. And we want to build a proper school so that we can make this a dormitory, so we can actually build bunk beds to give the girls beds to sleep in. So that's another thing that we desire to do for this partner. And and I want to tell you, when I hear these things, and and maybe you're different than me, but I I want you to hear the heart of our church. When I hear that, every time Jill told me about something like that last night, how much, how much, how much. Um, And I I have people ask me all the time, you know, how long are we going? When are we going to get a building? When, you know, when do we get to move out of the school? Listen, I hope sooner than later because it's, you know, it's it's a long day getting here at 6 a.m. to set everything up and take it down. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'd rather build a building in India and keep meeting in a school than go build some church palace here that, that we're in a few hours a week. I mean, you're talking about places where kids live. Um, and when you think about 100 acres and their goal is to have a, a thousand orphan girls that can live there. Um, you know, the, um, American churches have capacity to, to really raise a lot of money. One of the churches that I learned a lot of ministry from has a quarter billion dollar campus. Uh, in, and I'm not going to say which state it is because it, it'll name it. But they have $250 million worth of property and buildings. And the last time I was down there, they were trying to raise another $60 million to, buy, to build another building. And I thought, you know, I don't want to judge the motive, but I just thought, man, that they have the ability to raise a lot of money you know, what could you do in India for $60 million if you didn't want to add another building? And, you know, and I hear stuff like this, and this is, this is the heart that I want our church to have where we say, you know, we have everything we need here. Um, let's meet in a school for another year so we can build a school in India and so that we can build a church in India and so we can build a wall or so we can get fresh water. Uh, so as, as we talk about our causes, these are not just thing, activities like we talked about last week we're flipping money at. We really want to partner with these people to make a difference in the world. John, you've got some pictures back there um, that he's going to show while we're talking, about six minutes worth of pictures. And I want to, the, these are, uh, and you'll see pictures of the girls and of the, uh, as they begin to scroll through there, the water filtration system and some of the places. But these are actually our girls right, right here. The, these girls we, we support. They, when you give in the offering, it, it, a portion of it goes to these kids right here. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you about some of the. Do you know all these girls personally? So I just I want to talk to you about some of our kids um, that we're supporting, and then I want to talk specifically to you. We we've been in talks about uh, taking a mission trip from our church to come to India and minister to these girls and love these girls. And you know, some of you builders, we need you to go over and help us build stuff to to provide what what we need to do. What what you see going on behind us. Um, but while these pictures are going. Tell us about some of our girls. I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly. So just tell us about some of the girls that our church um, are supporting and, and what that means. At less than a dollar a day, living needs. So when, when we support that kids, like, what does that take care of? Is that their clothes? Is that their food? Is that, what, what is that? It is. So for 30, actually, it's, it's $35 a month. Right. And that's what you all are sending for um, 10 girls in India. I mean, these and, are, I, and I want to tell I'm embarrassed by that. I feel like we should be supporting 1,000. We just, you know, we're, we're not to that place yet. But, I mean, I think we're supporting... 
10 girls, and I think, gosh, that's so embarrassing. Lord, help us to be able to do more. But you know what? You, are, you really are impacting the lives of 10 little girls in India. And um, so please don't I keep interrupting. Such Forgive a me. So what, no, what, is, no, what does that mean? What is that, what's that and money so go to? This little girl, Ramya, is her name, Ramya. She's 13, and she's precious. I'm going to have and to roll my, learn to roll my tongue like that yes. if I'm going to say their names correctly. We have um, one of the little girls. I, I can't, you know, I mean, you go barefoot in India all the time, and I remember having painted toes. And she said, oh, I love your red, red toes. <laughs> <laughs> so little Ramya, uh, she says, when she grows up, she would like to be a bank manager. Mm. And um, her favorite subject in school is math. And her favorite foods are pomegranates, dates, apples, and mangoes. Her favorite color is pink. And her favorite animal is the lion. And what, 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 and what do we do for her? What, is our, what does our money do for her? For Ramya, for Kusalia, for Kurtika, you all and, and seven other girls, for $35 a month, you are paying for all of her food, for her clothing. Like three meals a day for 30 days? Okay. Yeah, three okay. meals a day. And then some, for, you know, I mean, Indians, for those of you who don't know, they have to have their morning tea and their afternoon tea and their biscuits. It's I like that. very British cool. of them. Um, we should start doing that, Daniel. And so Morning paying, tea, <laughs> afternoon tea, and it biscuits. It is quite nice. <laughs> you can get that ready and bring that to me. <laughs> yep, I'm sleeping on the couch tonight. Yes, <laughs> you are. <laughs> so what, what else? I keep interrupting. Forgive me. I, I have ADD. Forgive me. So. I do, too, so yeah. I'm liking this. It's Perfect, great. yeah. Uh, yeah, so you pay for, for their, their food biscuits and tea, and uh, three meals a day, and their clothing, and their housing, and uh, their education, all of their educational expenses, so they can go on, they can be educated. They're actually educated on site, and so they have teachers that come in every day and teach them um, all the major subjects. We have girls from this, from this orphanage who just graduated, who have gone on to nursing school, and so Invisible Girl Project pays for these girls to go into nursing school so that they can be educated and they can have a future. I mean, they're in college. And, you know, if you think back to when their mothers were deciding whether they should kill them or not, who would have ever thought that these girls would have grown up and gone on to college and have a future? And the thing is, is I know it's hard to really, um, you know, India seems just it seems like a world away. We can't even, if you haven't been there, it's hard to even envision. And I'm talking about these names that sound so strange. And but these are real people. And if you, which I hope you do, get to meet all of them, you just want to take their little faces in your hands. And you just want to hug them. And they want to hug you too because they don't see white people or people of different skin colors often at all. And, um, and they just want to hold you. And, and they just want to be loved and you're going to get the chance. Awesome. So, so these are our girls. Tell, tell so me the Kurt, name. Kurtika, and I know Kurtika, she loves to dance. And um, what you see, I mean, quite often Indians you love know, to Danielle dance. You know, Danielle loves to dance. They had a <laughs> dance party at the, uh, at the ladies' deal. Really? Yeah. Did <laughs> anyone have to come get, over and anybody dance. get video of that? To, to sh- <laughs> you got some? I had a girl last. We'll show that to you sometime. Um, how about her? Jebapriya. Jebe Priya, she's 14. She's very shy when you meet her. You can almost tell from her picture. Yeah, you can. Um, but so shy and so just sweet. Girija, she just is so skinny and just tiny. Um, and she loves to just hold your I, I remember her. She wants to just come hold your hand and sit on your lap. 
Archana is quiet. She's shy. She's from Orissa. It's a state in um, north of, of where we lived. And um, in 2008, uh, many Christian missionaries who were Indians were being martyred there by Hindu fundamentalists. And so a lot of these girls, like Archana, saw their parents killed. Um, Archana is one of the girls who saw, um, one of these little girls saw her father completely dismembered, like witnessed it. Is she one of the ones that y'all found in the woods? Yes. And so um, Archana, with a number of other girls from the state, fled to the woods in the midst of seeing their parents being, being killed, really for Christ. And they were living in the forest. And little kids by themselves. Little kids yeah. living, living off of whatever they could find in the forest. And um, they were found by some other Christian missionaries. Our partner here, Home of Love, that you sponsor, uh, heard their story and said, bring them here. We will give them a home. And so many of these girls have been through awful, awful things, things that we can't even fathom in seeing their parents sacrifice and they're orphans now, but they have a home now. They're at this home that we partner with where they um, are continuing to be taught about Jesus Christ and, now, and, and where they're loved. She says for fun, she likes to play American soccer. Yes. What's, what's the difference? Soccer. Okay. All right. Yes. But you know, I mean, if you say football over there, that means soccer to them. So they want, she wanted to be very specific and let us know that she plays American soccer. American soccer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Belvigi, she, um, she's very girly. She likes to wear little things in her hair, and um, she's precious and always smiles. And, yeah, and then we're back to Ramya. Wow. So these are our girls, and we've, we've got a few more that, that we're going to get. Now, some of the things that our church can do is send, I, I mean, we, like we need people to write letters to these girls once a month, write all the girls Get yes. mail and yeah, it's not even once a month actually. Okay. We're asking and we're asking that you do this right away. Um, my husband and I are going over in January, and um, as part of a child sponsorship program, people want to be in communication with the girls that they sponsor. Right. The thing is, though, not, not everybody necessarily writes letters to their girls, and because these girls are living in an orphanage with 70 plus other girls, and if one girl gets a letter and another girl doesn't you can imagine how that's going to hurt some feelings. And so we want to make sure that every one of these girls gets a letter. So we would love for you to have your children or for you to send pictures, to write letters. And and you'll send them to us in Indianapolis, and then we'll take them over uh, when we go January 2nd to these little girls and be able to deliver a letter from America to them. And we are discussing possibly a, a trip late summer, early fall, be able to take some of our folks to go over and meet these girls and do ministry. What would that What would that trip look like? What, what would we do? How long would we be there? So, what qualifications do we have to have? You, of course, have, don't need to have any qualifications. Okay. Just be willing and, and be prayerful and see if God is calling you to go. Um, my first trip to India, when I was going just on a mission trip to an orphanage, God made it so clear that that's what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to go on that mission trip where I ended up meeting my husband and which solidified the fact that I was supposed to move to India. Now, I'm not saying that if you go on the mission trip that you're going to meet a husband or <laughs> that, that God's going to call you to move there. But um, Specifically good for married people who want to go over. That would be <laughs> yeah. extremely awkward. But I do think that it's wonderful if you, can, if you are married to go with your spouse. It's such a bonding thing. My husband and I just seeing the poverty in India, seeing the need, touch, God touching both of our hearts, knowing that that's what we're supposed to do. So you're going to have the opportunity to go. And so pray about it. And, um, you know, God calls us to go to the nations, as Christian says. He also makes it very clear. He has shown you, O man, what is good 
and what the Lord requires, what he requires of all of us in Micah, he says this, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. And so, um, you know, part of loving mercy is, is, is loving and serving these little girls in India. And so you'll be able to come to India with us, meet all of these girls, love on the girls. We would like to do a vacation Bible school for the girls. And so that means taking them out to a campsite, having them play in the ocean, um, giving them lessons, Bible lessons, um, playing games with them. You know, soccer, you will actually... Bas- soccer, soccer, basketball, that kind American of stuff. American soccer. Yeah, American yes. soccer, right. <laughs> uh, So you'll be able to do that. Um, there might be a specific need that we will have at the time. If, if one of our partners says, well, you know, it's time. We need to build some bunk beds. Maybe that's what we'll end up doing. Or maybe they'll say, you know what, we have um, problems that we need to fix on site. Would you be willing to fix this building? Or whatever it is, there may be a specific need. But you'll be able to go and serve the girls, get your hands dirty, play with them, and love them. Well, Joe, I want you to know our church is here to help. I mean, I, you know, I, we, we, are, we are behind your ministry um, you know, and our, our church, our church won't be fully supportive. You know, our, our offerings right now don't even come close to paying for our church. Probably it'll take three years for us to be able to quit raising money and, and just have our offerings pay for our church with some of the bills that we have. Uh, and I had a lot of people from the very beginning say, don't start giving away money, um, and until your church pays for itself or you'll never catch up. And I thought, you know, that is not what God has called us to do. We're going to give away from the very beginning and we'll raise it for longer if we have to to keep giving away. So I want you to know we're, we're behind you and we're excited to come and be a part of what we're doing. Uh, but today's, you know, every time we sit in church, I want to minister to people's hearts. So I'm going to ask you one last question uh, and then we'll close our time today. And I, I, I recognize we're, we're running a little late today. Um, a, lot of, a lot of hurting people in here that would love to be able to do what, what you're doing, but they think life has passed them by. Um, young, uh, struggles with addictions, struggle with anxiety or emotional issues, emotional issues. Um, you know, some people physically sick in here, some people whose marriages are failing or have failed, and they just think, God can't use me anymore. One of the most incredible things about your story is both you and Brad, very young, your husband, went through divorces um, and kind of, you know, thought that part of life had passed you by. And, and now you, you have a, a, a new wind, a new life, I mean, a, a second chance. So speak to those who are hurting that think maybe, maybe they're not cut out for this because they, they already failed in their life and encourage them to, you know, maybe not do what you're doing, um, but encourage them with the hope that you have now, looking back on it. Thank you. Yeah, Christian asked me last night when we were talking, um, would I mind sharing the story? Because, you know, I mean, it's kind of personal, but I am really glad because uh, – God did put my husband and I, allowed us to go through the fires. Um, both of us were divorced, and, without, you know, we didn't know each other. Um, and I thought, gosh, I'm, I'm never going to get married again. Um, I felt like I had a, a scarlet letter branded to me, you know, the big D. I was divorced. And in, being a Christian from the time I was little just felt like in, in Christian culture, that's uh, such a stigma to be divorced. And, um, you know, that's just a lie. That's a lie from the enemy. And um, I think that, you know, Satan wants us to believe that that's true. And that's just not. It's not true at all. You know, God um, introduced my husband and me together and, and knew before the foundation of the world that we would end up being together and certainly allowed us to go through things so that he could bless us, you know, now. Um, allow me to share the story with you that God absolutely wants to use you no matter where you are in life. 
no matter what you've gone through, he is there. He loves you, and you are his child. You are precious, precious to him, and he has a plan. He knows the plan he has for you, and he wants to use you to glorify his kingdom. And so whether that's moving to India, being here, supporting little girls, coming on a mission trip, being a light in your community, whatever it is, he wants you, and he's asking you, he's asking each one of us, to glorify his name no matter what you've been through. And that just even glorifies him more, that you've come out of the fires and that you can um, praise him with joy. So we'll end with this thought. You were created to make a difference. Regardless of where you are in life, no matter how broken you are, no matter how broken your situation is, you were made to make a difference. And when you get on the road to making a difference, your life will be so filled with joy. It doesn't mean all the hurt will go away. But your life will be so filled with joy. And I want you to know, as a member of this church, when people ask you, what does international mean? Hopefully you can have the answer to some of, that, some, some of those questions. And we're just not going to send money flippantly around the place. Jill, we want you and Brad to come back every year and update us. Uh, our friends from Africa will be here uh, in the spring. Our friends from Romania will be spending time talking to you. We're going to let you know who our friends are around the world. And, and this church, we're going to meet in Lee Summit. But we're going to do ministry all over the world because that's what we believe God has called us to. Here's what I want you to do, right? As, as we get ready to close, I want you to grab your connection card today and, uh, and hold on to your connection card because I, w- I want to give you some opportunities to get engaged in what's going on in India. Uh, so I want you to grab this. Before we do this, let's just stop and pray right now and just pray God's blessing on our service and our lives. Father, we come to you right now in Jesus' name, and we just thank you for our time together this morning. And, Lord, we thank you for this church and the burden that you've given us to believe that it is our duty to, uh, to make a difference in the world. And God, I just pray that, uh, that as we move forward, Lord, you'll give us the people and the resources, uh, Lord, and help us to be so unselfish with those that we may make a difference all over the world. Be with the men and women here today who are hurting, who feel like maybe they've been branded, who are uncomfortable around the Christian culture, who think God can't use them, and help them to be able to see what has happened with Jill and Brad and these little girls around the world to know that they have been created to make a difference. And no matter where they've been, what they've been through, how badly they have failed, they've been created to make a difference. And God, they can do that as they move forward. Let this church be filled with people who love you and who live for you and who make a difference for you. As he sings in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this connection card and, yeah, we use this as, as an attendance roster.